My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's an aspect of the overdose crisis that has always made some people uncomfortable. Whatever it's form, whatever it's called. These sorts of programs are known officially as harm reduction. To their critics, they're seen as helping drug addicts get high. Now, they can take the form of simple education. They can be safe injection sites or testing drugs for purity. And more recently, some of these programs have focused on safer supply. I will let the leader of Canada's opposition explain why he and others have a problem with that. What the Prime Minister is doing is massively increasing the drug overdose crisis in this country. He has been providing taxpayer dollars for high-powered drugs that have flooded our streets. Pierre Polyev might be putting a very cynical spin on this. But he's not technically wrong about what safer supply actually is. You can argue whether or not the actions make the overdose crisis better or worse. And you can argue about where the drugs end up. But safer supply does involve the government providing funds to supply drugs to users in the hopes they'll take those drugs instead of other, more dangerous drugs. You can see why that's a divisive idea, but you can also look at the scale of the problem right now and see that we're not in a position to be closed-minded about ideas that could save lives. In one day alone, in March, the BC Ambulance Service received 205 overdose calls. It's now averaging 120 calls a day. At first, it was just fentanyl that was on the street, but now we're seeing the fentanyl, and it's mixed with a variety of other substances. So what exactly is Safer Supply? How do these programs work in practice? What do we know from the research about if they help and how much? Do we know... What really happens to the drugs that are provided? Are they taken safely? Are they sold? Are they exchanged for other or worse street drugs? And here's one final question. If the recipients do take those drugs and sell them or take them to the street, are we sure that's a failure? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Lindsay Richardson is an associate professor in sociology at the University of British Columbia, as well as the Canada Research Chair in Social Inclusion and Health Equity. Hello, Dr. Richardson. Hello, Jordan. Thank you for finding time for us today. My pleasure. I want to start at the very beginning of this because uh, this has become, I guess, again, a controversial topic in Canada. So maybe lay the groundwork. When we talk or when politicians talk about safe supply or safer supply, what are we actually discussing? What is the policy? Safe supply or safer supply is really a response to our current context in which 
The street drug market is incredibly toxic and the main driving force behind our current levels of overdose, which are killing people at unprecedented rates. And so safe supply or safer supply is a broad term that refers to the provision of drugs of known purity and potency. So we know what is in the drug, we know how strong it is. Safe supply has as its primary goal to separate people from that toxic drug supply, where potency and purity are totally unknown. And it's seen as one of the primary ways to effectively address the overdose or drug poisoning crisis. And so it first started as an initial response to the pandemic in April 2020, uh, where having these dual public health crises was anticipated to have really extreme consequences. Mm -hmm. And since then, there have been 28 federally funded safer supply pilot programs across Canada that involve the medical prescription of sort of substitution drugs for people with substance use disorder. There are also a couple of community-based initiatives. Uh, Those of these aren't currently legal and they operate at a relatively small scale. Most safe supply is operating through a medical model. And one of the things that's really important to know about that medical model is that it isn't really accessible to people without a substance use disorder diagnosis. Hmm. And so we know that a significant proportion of people who are being poisoned by the toxic drug supply don't have that diagnosis. And so, you know, medically prescribed safe supply helps some people, but not all people that need access to drugs that have known potency and purity. That's a great primer. Can you maybe explain or walk me through what some of those pilot programs would look like in practice? Um, You know, give me an example of who gets them, where do they go, what do they get, like what actually takes place on the ground? So what this would look like in theory is a person going to a physician and requesting safe supply and the physician assessing the person's eligibility to receive a prescribed safe supply uh, of drugs. And so it would depend on the person's particular symptomology, depend on their drug use practices, et cetera. And it also depends on the physician's ability to assess that person and assess the suitability of safe supply for that person. If the person is eligible and the physician prescribes safe supply, that person would then take that prescription to a pharmacy. Hmm. And so the person with the prescription gets a pharmaceutical grade drug that is intended to substitute the street drugs that they'd previously been accessing. What do we know? And here's where we're going to get into the controversy of the last couple of weeks in Canadian political circles, at least. What do we know based on actual data so far? how much this has or hasn't helped. I know, as you mentioned, it's only been around since the pandemic, and sometimes it can take quite a while for us to figure out what's actually going on. For sure. So, you know, because it's a new intervention, it really is going to take time because, you know, in the immediate, we can think about things like, okay, how many people are prescribing, who's accessing, But what we really care about in the long term is how is this affecting people's safety? How is it affecting communities? Is it eroding people's reliance on the toxic drug supply? And that's going to take a while to really understand. So each federally funded pilot program has its own research and evaluation component. And there is a safe supply community of practice 
that is collecting these evaluations and posting them on a centralized website. And they're also posting any academic publications about safe supply that come out. So that community of practice is so far the, the best place to go to understand, okay, what evaluation has been done? What have we learned so far? And as many of these projects are so new, research is ongoing and the community level impact data is really in its earlier preliminary stages. But what we know from sort of those preliminary sort of pieces of information that are coming is that safe supply is starting to reduce people's reliance on unregulated and toxic drugs. So for example, the BC Coroner Service uh, released data recently that showed that prescribed safer supply medications have not contributed to any fatal drug poisonings or overdoses in BC. Mm-hmm. And so what we know is those drugs are not driving the overdose crisis in the way that the street drug supply has been. And so we don't know much yet, but when we view safe supply in light of the primary goal of separating people from the toxic drug supply, these are preliminary signals that suggest it seems to be working. Over the past couple of weeks, as I've mentioned now a couple of times, there's been um, some relatively vehement opposition to these programs, including uh, from politicians and also a large investigation by one of our national newspapers that claimed that people on these safe supply programs are trading in those drugs for uh, the unregulated drugs that you just mentioned, therefore, I guess, uh, (laughs) defeating the purpose of the program. First, before we get into that, what have you thought of this controversy? I'm not going to get you to comment specifically on the 10,000-word article because that would take a long time, and that's already been done on other programs, but this has now reached the, the highest level of Canadian federal politics as a debate. So, you know, as you mentioned, there's been an explosion of commentary about the issue. And as you mentioned also, much of the commentary has focused on the so-called hazards of diversion, where uh, medically prescribed safe supply drugs are then sold, traded, or given away on the street. And I am frustrated about the politicization of this public health issue. And, you know, we need to recognize that there are political dimensions here But a lot of the conversation doesn't address the broader context of what safer supply is for, which is to separate people from the toxic street drug supply. Right. And a lot of the criticism has also relied on the anecdotes of a few physicians. Uh, And so when we think about this in the bigger picture, it's important to remember that diversion is not new, Hmm. right? These are drugs that have been prescribed for medical purpose for a long time, and diversion has always happened in the prescription of psychoactive substances. So that's sort of the first thing to think about. It's also important to think about how inciting panic around diversion without a broad understanding of why that diversion is happening is really, it's not on, right? There's a recent study that has come out uh, that was published by uh, colleagues at the end of April that talks about how hydromorphone, which is one of the main opioids that is prescribed in safe supply pilots, is not sufficient for people, right? It might be that the diversion is happening because we haven't got the right drug that's being prescribed yet, or that drug doesn't work for everybody. Hmm. And so... What we're trying to do with safe supply is create as much distance as possible between people who use and the toxic drug supply 
And what that means is that we need to constantly be thinking about what are the best ways to do that. And the political discussion has also inaccurately assessed a lot of current published research and emerging research, and it fails to acknowledge that the majority of our assessments here are ongoing. We don't know yet exactly what the impacts are. Hmm. And so because it's a new intervention, because it takes time to evaluate and assess, those public policy decisions or any public policy position should be based on scientific evaluation and not on anonymously sourced anecdotes, right? It is too early to say whether it's worked, how it's worked, how it could be modified to work, etc. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Given that diversion has been happening uh, with other drugs and for a long time, as you point out, and, you know, anybody who's ever, uh, I guess, gotten some Tylenol 3s off somebody who had a recent dental appointment or, you know, bought some Ritalin in high school from a classmate uh, is probably guilty of this. Why is it safer supply that has become such a hot button issue when we talk about, uh, I guess, prescription drugs getting where they're not technically supposed to get? Again, I think it's important to think about this in the bigger picture, right? When we have small levels of diversion happening, it doesn't sort of capture our national imagination in the same way. But when the federal government is supporting pilot programs that are prescribing drugs to people for use in this way, it really taps into a nerve. So I think when we think about this broadly, we think about it not just as an opioid crisis, but a drug poisoning crisis more broadly that involves a whole range of substances. Mm-hmm. And it means that it's a bit outside our comfort zone to provide psychoactive drugs as a safety measure. Right. Right. That doesn't sit with how we've treated these drugs for the last 150 years. So is that a failure of now or is that a failure of the last 150 years? I mean, from my perspective, thinking about the historical context of criminalization, you know, as a society, we've stigmatized and criminalized people who use drugs. And what we know from research is that stigmatization and criminalization often makes things worse, not better. Mm -hmm. And so our reactions to safe supply are really embedded in that longstanding and entrenched norm around what we should do with drug use as a society. Right. And we saw similar hot button things happening when we were in the process of cannabis legalization. Mm -hmm. Safe injection sites. Safe injection sites, most harm reduction measures. We've seen this before, right? It's what's known in the, the sort of Canadian public policy literature around substance use as panic and indifference. Hmm. You have these attitudes, you have significant controversy, it captures the national political attention. And for example, in the case of cannabis, this has really receded because when cannabis legalization happened, you know, the rollout had predictable, you know, bumps in the road, Mm -hmm. but the sky did not fall. 
right. when cannabis was legalized. And so what we've seen now is a subsiding of a lot of that controversy. And when there is a new thing that taps into that nerve that is based on 150 years of norms of stigmatization and criminalization, we tap into that yet again. And so I think it's a hot button issue because we often forget about that longer term context. Well, it's always weird for me when I have to ask um, serious doctors and academics PR questions. But I'm going to ask you a PR question, which is how do we mitigate that panic um, with messaging around safer supply? And I particularly want to ask, just because uh, I've seen it in a number of places now discussing this, the idea of vending machines. Um, I believe there's a program called MySafe that uh, uses vending machines to hand out these drugs, presumably to people who have qualified through a physician, uh, through safer supply. But how do we how would we improve the optics of this so that it doesn't spark that visceral reaction you just talked about? Oh, that is, that really is the question. Uh, in part because, you know, drug use is politically divisive and has been divisive for a really long time. And that divisiveness is really based on a difference between, you know, people who endorse a more simplified version of like drugs are bad, we should get rid of them. The only way that to do that is to force abstinence versus people who are more pragmatically oriented who think about the world as, you know, drug use is a part of human society. We should figure out how to make it as safe as possible. And that, mm -hmm. that division is going to be really exacerbated when you have something that looks like a vending machine distributing a substance that can only be prescribed. Right. And so, you know, the MySafe project is a bit of a, a a visual focal point where people are like, you know, they're selling drugs and vending machines. What is the world coming to? Mm -hmm. And I think when we think about the PR question, it really becomes a question of how do we bring closer together the people who think about drug policy or access to these kinds of things as violating a vision for the way we want society to be mm. closer to the people who think, okay, this is the pragmatic reality of what we're dealing with right now. How do we keep people alive? Yeah, Bridging that division is a challenge that I'm not sure anyone has figured out in part because these issues have political salience. And so if there is someone in a position of political power who thinks that they can leverage public support by tapping into those fears, they are likely going to take the opportunity to do that. Speaking of division in drug policy, um, people, and by people I include the leader of the federal opposition here, people who are against safe, safer supply say that, look, we don't know if it works, the drugs might be getting to places where they're not helping, and this is money that should be going to getting people off drugs via rehab and treatment and addiction counseling. How do those two approaches compare and how could they coexist? Well, I think what's really important to remember here is that the research around rehab and treatment is also mixed, right? No, we don't know whether or not Safe Supply has the evidence base that it's going to take time to develop yet. And we also know that not all things work for all people, right? This is not a one-size-fits-all situation. You know, one thing that we really know does not work is our current approach. 
we have tens of thousands of people who have died because the drug supply is toxic. Hmm. Yeah. What we know is that some approaches work for some people and not others, and that different approaches are needed at different times in people's lives. And so if we're going to effectively address the overdose crisis, it's going to require a safe, regulated, accessible drug supply. It's going to require that we address the social and economic driver drivers of drug-related harm. And it's going to require that we have a comprehensive, accessible, and culturally appropriate system of treatment, harm reduction, and social care. And so, you know, to reiterate, it doesn't mean that rehab and treatment are not important. It means that we need to be moving forward on all fronts because different things work for different people at different times. The last thing I want to ask is about the research that's happening now and is still to come. You know, you mentioned right off the top when, when I sort of asked about evidence that there are studies that are emerging. They're done on small programs. Uh, we haven't had time yet to see a full evaluation of this. When might we get that? And what could it do to this conversation? Because uh, right now, again, to a layperson, um, it looks like this is something worth trying, but it also looks like there's no real hard evidence on either side right now. Am I wrong about that? Well, what I would say is that it, there's emerging evidence. And so, for example, the study that I mentioned that's recently been published at the end of April was the first evaluation of the MySafe program. And so we're starting to see peer-reviewed publications come out, but you're for the most part correct, right? We don't exactly know. And because there are 28 pilot programs across the country, it's not going to come in one fell swoop. We're going to learn that in London, this is what's working. We're going to learn that in Victoria, this is what's working. And I think there are sort of two overarching questions around safe supply that we need to pay attention to. And the first is, do we have the right drugs? Right. Is what we are trying to do with safe supply to separate people from the toxic drug supply and get as much distance between people who use drugs and that toxic supply as possible? So have we chosen the right drugs to try and create that distance? And do people have sufficient access to those drugs? Mm -hmm. There's some preliminary and early stage research that, you know, talks about the strengths and limitations of medical models. And I think we know that medical models have been the sort of logical first step in piloting this work because we're dealing with physicians and pharmacists and people who have experience with these pharmaceutical grade drugs. But we also know that there are limitations to medical models. And we've seen that a lot of physicians aren't trained to provide this type of care or aren't comfortable providing this kind of care. It's very difficult to scale up medical models in a meaningful way because it requires someone to go to the medical system and not everyone can access medical care easily. So that's got implications for health equity. Mm -hmm. And there are implications for people in rural and remote areas, for sure. And so when we think about what's the best model, you know, that's going to be a question that we have to pay attention to. And there are some really interesting community-based models that are moving forward. You know, there's the Drug Users Liberation Front in Vancouver, the Kootenai Insurrection for Safe Supply in the interior of BC, and they are trying to do this differently. And so we can start to think about, okay, what are the strengths and limitations of a medical model? What would be the strengths and limitations of community-based models? Mm -hmm. Do we have the right drugs? 
are we getting people access to them? And what can we modify in order to stay attached to that bigger picture goal of separating people from the toxic drug supply? And in the meantime, we're doing this in a race against time, really. We really are. Dr. Richardson, thank you for this. I understand it a bit better now. It's been my pleasure. Dr. Lindsay Richardson of the University of British Columbia. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can look up Dr. Lindsay Richardson on that page. You can find a previous episode featuring her on drug decriminalization. If you'd like to talk to us, you can always find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can always email us, hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. And of course, you can call us 416-935-5935 and leave us a voicemail. We love to hear from listeners. And if you've already forgotten anything I just said, I will put that contact information into our show notes for easy access. Joseph Fish is the lead producer of The Big Story. Ebian Abdigir and Robin Simon are our producers. Ryan Clark leads our team of sound designers. Samandara is our research assistant. I am Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season 6, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada, within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency.